Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to discuss a bunch of things, uh, beginning with this, a, a very sort of a thorny uh, psychological sort of problem, uh, which I want to kind of like broaden and discuss in sort of its most sort of met- metaphysical manifestation. And that is uh, the, the issue of closure or lack of closure. Um, lack of closure is, is often something that um, baffles people and um, is, is very sort of uh, undermining to uh, emotional stability because you want a sense of, well, where do we stand exactly? And it's, um, or, so, so you know, I, I once heard something very, and I'm saying this as an introduction to my, my remarks right now, I once heard something very important uh, in, in, in Torah, we use the word, uh, we, we say it's a klal. That means it's a foundation. So, so things like this you have to have in mind because um, you, you have to have these foundations in terms of approaching all of your learning. So you, you have to have certain foundations in place because it allows you to properly assess all future learning that you hear because it's, oftentimes it's a caveat um, or a... Uh, uh, a a premise that that other teachings have to be seen in the context of. I, I hope that I'm communicating right now. But here's the point, and we can double back, and, and what I just said hopefully will be a little bit clearer, is that I, I heard someone say one time that you can't just hear one speech from a rabbi. And the reason is because oftentimes they'll emphasize a single point, which is the point of their speech. But they'll often, if you, and then the people who are listening will think, well, boom, that's it. That's, that's what the Torah says on the subject. But if you heard that same rabbi speak again, he could tell you the opposite thought. And he's not contradicting himself. It's just that the speech that you heard is for one set of circumstances. But that doesn't mean it's in every set of circumstances. And so there, as one grows more sophisticated in terms of Torah and in terms of just being a mature uh, individual and a sophisticated individual you realize that different situations require different approaches and that your general framework might be that this is something to be avoided at all costs. Nonetheless, you might encounter a situation where that might be in that particular instance necessary to be patient or tolerant of that thing because otherwise the entire person is going to unwind. So again, you have to, you have to be able to have a broader perspective, a bigger context for evaluating these things, okay? So, so closure, I'm going to talk about lack of closure in a moment, but closure is, is, is a very important thing for people to have. And if you feel as though you don't know where you stand in a relationship and everything like that, um, you should endeavor to try to determine if it's to the not, not in an alienating way and not in a bullying way, but you should, you know, with proper sensitivity, try to assess, you know, where you stand so that you're not um, dangling in this sort of twisting in the wind type place with insecurity. Okay? So, so closure is important. Um, I heard something very beautiful from Reb Shlomo Karlbach that, that, that a segula for finishing projects Okay, not exactly the same thing. Now we're moving to a little slightly more practical place, not, not in the emotional realm, but there are emotional implications to finishing a project. 
is um, having the aliyah of uh, uh, Galila. Galila is where, uh, Hagba is where you lift up the Torah, and then the person who wraps up the Torah, you usually tie a string around it, or sometimes you'll have a Vel- Velcro strap, that, that that finishing of the, of, the, of the putting away of the Torah, so to speak, that that's a segula, that's a, that's a blessing for finishing projects. So again, on the idea of closure. So closure is very important. Okay, now that I've told you that closure is very important, I want to tell you that we never have closure. <laughs> okay? So, and this may be the only time you ever hear me speak. So, so I, I, I'm, trying to give you, I'm trying to give you a, a rounded presentation. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's really the point that I really want to make, is that metaphysically speaking, we never have closure. And, 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 but I, I don't want to just tell you that, and then you should think that, well, you know, I'm in this relationship, and I don't have any closure, and I heard the guy say that you never have any closure, so I guess I'm not going to go for any closure. I'm trying to avoid being misinterpreted. Okay? So, again, just another clue. What a person has to do, again, I'm talking about being a mature, sophisticated student of Torah right now, is you have to do what I call making a 360 around a teaching. What that means is you hear a particular point, but you have to do, you have to ask yourself, how does this apply in this circumstance? How does it apply in this circumstance? How does it apply in this circumstance? And this way you're not getting some sort of two-dimensional rookie introduction to a concept, but you're actually learning how to integrate it into your life and into, you know, uh, different situations, which, you know, given the human landscape, it's always going to be complicated, right? I, I, a friend once used the phrase, which I like very much, just in describing the human condition, as the unprecedented present, that we're always basically in the unprecedented present, meaning to say that oftentimes you can look at your current situation and you can say, well, you know something, um, past is prologue and, and, and everything has been leading up to this and let's learn from past events and right, he who neglects to learn from history is condemned to repeat it, right? The famous George Santayana quote, sometimes, but sometimes the present situation is, is not the thing that you think that, oh, this is just another manifestation of everything that's always been. And in that way, reality and life always becomes very, very tricky because you don't know when this is sort of like, oh, okay, I can learn from past examples. And when you have to say, wait a second, am I, and this is another phrase which is helpful to know, am I fighting the last battle? They say when in wars, we're always fighting the last battle, meaning to say that, that um, we say, okay, well, our last war, how did it work out? And then you try to learn all the lessons from the last battle and you apply them to the new battle. But sometimes the new battle isn't the last battle. It's a brand new battle. And so by applying the lessons from the last battle, you're actually not doing yourself a service. So that's the idea of the unprecedented present, that every situation is new and you have to look at it, well, you know, do, oh, I know exactly what to do. I made a mistake last time and now I'm going to make the, 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 the opposite move this time, which will be the proper move. Sometimes that's the right course. Other times you go, oh, I'm going to, I didn't do it last time, now I'm going to do it this time. Sometimes that's the wrong course. <laughs> 
This is why thousands of years later we're still in exile. Because it's hard. This is hard. When do I know what to do? We, it, this is hard. This is hard. It's taken us thousands of years. Bless you. It's taken us thousands of years to get this right. It's hard. And don't have unrealistic expectations of yourself. But, but in general, you should know, if you've been trying the same thing over and over again, and it hasn't been working, that's usually a very good sign that you have to try something new. That much we can say. That much we can say. Um, okay. So, this idea of lack of closure, I, I wanted to say that, you know, again, in, in personal relationships, one should endeavor to have closure. However, metaphysically, in terms of the grander, the grander sense of the human experience or the soul's experience in this world, there is no closure, and that's a positive thing. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Because ultimately, just to put it very simply, God is infinite and we are finite. And because God is infinite and we are finite, that means that the soul will never stop experiencing further elevations and higher elevations of godliness. Because we are a creation, a subset that exists within God. And as such, we'll always be finding out new things. Higher and higher revelations. And that's true in this world, and it's certainly true when the soul continues to journey after this lifetime within the infinity of God in the next world. And it's also true when this world reaches its next stage of evolution, which will be after the resurrection of the dead, when reality will become something else. And, and then it's going to be, again, a much higher revelation of, of reality and, and godliness. And so this is something that, that we can look forward to, that we can be excited about, and, and it's sort of a lack of closure, which is a wonderful thing. You know, because again, it's just sort of like, Infinite travels within God. Now, now I'm bringing this up, and I, I've got what I think is a new, for me anyway, a new idea to, to share, and it's on one of my absolute favorite subjects, so I'm especially excited to, uh, to share it, which is um, on the 42 journeys, because that's, that's a, a theme that, uh, that I like very much. So the, the 42 journeys is something that we just... Um, read about in, in uh, these two parshas, uh, Matos and Masai. And that's the end of, interestingly, it's the, the end of, the, of, of uh, Sefer Bamidbar, also known as the Book of Numbers. Now, that's significant. Let me just tell you why for a moment, which is that we've got five books of the Torah, and the fifth book of the Torah, which we're now beginning, is called uh, Sefer Devarim. In English, it's called Deuteronomy. Um, and that's, that, that fifth book of the Torah is known as Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. Now, what's very fascinating about the, just the dynamics of Devarim, which is um, uh, Moshe, Moses' farewell speech to the Jewish people, um, that he started on the first day of Shvat, Chodesh Shvat, um, and it, it, it just reviews everything in the Torah. But what's fascinating about it is that there are new halachas that are to be found there. So if you say that it's strictly a review, then how could there be new mitzvahs there, right? So 
I had the thought that, you see, I think God is teaching us a very beautiful lesson by putting something brand new in a review section. I think that Hashem is telling us the following message on one level, which is that when you review things, you're going to encounter things for the first time. That, that the nature of the infinity of the Torah is such that you will only encounter something new during the review process. And that every time you look into it, you're going to see something new. Every time you look into it again, you'll find something new. And, um, and, and, uh, but if we look at it as, as a repetition of the Torah, then the end of the book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar, becomes the end of the Torah, so to speak. Because that's the end of the formal Torah, and then we have the review process, right? So it's significant or meaningful that, that, the book, that, the, that in this formulation, the end of the fourth book, ends with the recounting of the 42 journeys that the Jewish people take through the desert. The reason being that the Baal Shem Tov gives us a very important foundation, very important clock which is that every single person, just like the Jews had 42 stops in the desert, each individual person has 42 stops in their own life that they go through from birth until our last day, right? Till 120, as we say. And I wondered about, like, how do you count those 42 stops? And this is just my own personal speculation, but perhaps those 42 stops can be different relationships, as well as physical places, or different jobs, or different spiritual levels, right? Or different emotional states. Perhaps, perhaps. I don't know what actually goes into the counting of the 42, you know? Um, or they might be strictly journeys that we make that are divided in that way. I'm, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, our personal lives parallel the path of the Jewish people from Egypt to Israel. Now remember, the path from Egypt to Israel... Is a, is, a, is a larger idea too. Because that's not just talking about a historical event a few thousand years ago. That's talking about the evolution of the world from a state of exile to a state of redemption. Israel doesn't just represent a country on a map, but Israel represents the perfected world, which the world is evolving toward. And so, so we have the idea of the 42 doesn't just represent a historical event. And it doesn't just represent a microcosm, um, a summing up of each of our individual lives, but it also represents the entirety of the history of the entire world. Okay? Going from this state of exile to redemption. And in that way, I once had a way of looking at the word breshis, the first word of the Torah, because if you want to talk about microcosms, you can say that the entire Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah. And so I looked at the word breshis one time and I wanted to break it into three parts. Okay, this is using all the letters. The first part would be just the letter Aleph of breshis. The second part would be the letters resh and yud. And the third part would be shin base taf, which spells Shabbos. So the three parts would be Aleph, resh and yud, 
and Shabbos. And how do we understand that? How do we see in the first word of the Torah the entire history of all of creation, everything that happened and everything that's going to happen? Because the first part is Aleph. Aleph, we know, stands for one. And we know if we break down the letter Aleph, it's three letters. It's two Yuds and a Vav, which add up to 26, which is the gematria of the holiest name of God, Yudke Vavke. Right? So in the beginning, it was just God. That's the Aleph. The second part, Resh and Yud, is Gematria 210. That's the years of the Egyptian exile. Meaning that after the world was created, the next stage of the existence of the world was exile. It's road to being completed. And the third state, and we know that all exiles are based on the Egyptian exile. And then the last state is the word Shabbos, which is, everybody knows that the Messianic period, the, the Zmanatikun, when the world is perfected, that's called Yom Shekulo Shabbos. The the, the day that will be all Shabbos, meaning that period of the perfected world. So again, you see the entire history of the world from before it was created till the Mashiach comes, all within the word Breshis, all within the first word of the Torah. So, so, so again, the 42, the 42 journeys that we make sum up the world going from, from exile to redemption. And, and now I want to share the, the new thought with you. And there are many, many, many 42s. Many, many, many 42s. Maybe I'll just rattle off a, a few, but not spend too much time on them, okay? There are 42, um, there are 42 words in the Via Hafta, um, the, the, the first paragraph after the Shema. Meaning to say that via hafta means you should love God. That means that wherever you travel, whatever stage in your life, love God and know that God loves you back, right? That's the 42 there. Uh, another 42, the first prayer in Shemona Esrei that, be, that ends with Magen Avraham. The very first prayer, starting with Baruch HaTah Hashem, Elokeinu Elokei Avosenu, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Yaakov, all the way to Baruch HaTah Hashem, Magen Avraham, 42 words. Magen Avraham means the shield of Avraham. We're all the children of Avraham. Meaning to say, wherever we travel in our 42, throughout all of our travels, we, the children of Avraham, are being protected by God. Right? What do we do during the 42 exiles? What, these 42 stops. How do we get through them? So 42 in Hebrew is membez. Mem is 40, bez is 2. Membez. Mem is the first letter of the Talmud. Me'emasai, Gemor Bruchas, the Torah Shabbat Peh, starts with the letter Mem. Be'ez is the first letter of the written Torah. Be'ez for Breshis. So, so Mem Be'ez, 42, is, is the two parts of the Torah. It's the beginning of the two parts of the Torah. Meaning to say that, that if we dwell in Torah, if we keep ourselves in the mindset of Torah, we'll be able to make it through these 42 stops because this is a hint to the 42. So, so these are just a few. There, 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 there are many more um, examples of 42. Uh, you know, I, I gave a, a, a longer talk, and if you, if you want to hear it, uh, uh, it's called um, uh, The Grand Zipper Theory of Life. <laughs> and maybe I can sum it up in two sentences. Um, I, was, I was thinking that the 42 was also 7 times 6. 
You're saying, okay, so what does that mean, seven times six? And if you think of like a zipper, like imagine you're zipping up a, a suitcase right now. So that's sort of like a, you know, from side to side, you know, um, uh, you know, across. You're going across by, by zipping things up. So that, imagine the top row is seven and the bottom row is six, okay? So seven times six is 42. So, so the length of the zipper would be the entire history of the world from, from the beginning till the end, right? Now, what's seven and what's six? So, so it seems to me that, that the idea being that what we're trying to do is zip up creation, right? That, that would be the idea of finishing everything. But what does that mean when you zip something up? Well, you see, six represents this world because we have the six days of the week. That's where we're working on this world to improve this world. Seven represents Shabbos. And like we said, there, the, the Messianic period is called the day that's all Shabbos. Not only that, but in terms of heaven, we say that there, the, the Talmud says in, that there's seven heavens. So seven represents heaven. Six represents this world, the days of the week, right? So seven times six is 42, but, 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 but still we haven't had the thought yet. So the bottom row is six, the top row is seven. What is the essential dynamic of creation? So I'd like to suggest it's the following. It's bringing earth up to heaven, and it's bringing heaven down to earth. It's that simultaneous dynamic. We're trying to bring the seven down to the six, and the six up to the seven. Right? And who, who does that? Well, you know, in the beginning of a zipper, you have that part where even if it's just one notch, it's already zipped. And then you just slide that, slide that across. Well, that's us. That's the human being. Because a human being is part earth. We're called Adam, right? That's the human being, right? Because the first person contained man and woman both. So Adam comes from the word Adama, which means earth. Because a human being was formed from the earth. So we're earth, but we also have a soul. So we're also heaven. And we're integrated, we're that integrated form of heaven and earth. So we, the integrations of heaven and earth, then endeavor to integrate heaven and earth through our actions by sanctifying and elevating and spiritualizing that which is material. We do that through uh, things like eating kosher, it's, we sanctify our food. We do that by uh, treating each other properly. We address the souls within each other, right? We also do that by keeping Shabbos and keeping other things where we're bringing heaven down to earth. And that integrates the above and the below. That's the zipping up process. And when we've done all the sixes with all the sevens, that's what? 42. Seven times six is 42. So that's the integration of heaven and earth. And that will be the completion of basically our mission in this world. We who are the integration of heaven and earth integrate heaven and earth. Um, okay. So now I haven't gotten to the idea yet that I wanted to share that I was excited about, which is, um, by the way, all these ideas I've been excited about at different times, but those are, <laughs> we have to keep it new, right? It says, or chadash al tzion ta'ir. And the simple translation is, a new light will shine on Sion. But I saw Rabbi Wilson Shlita say, no, Or Chadash Al Sion Tair means a light of newness will shine on 
Tzion, on Zion, on us. Meaning to say that the preferred state of being is in a state where everything is always new. That, that's what we want. We want to be in the state where everything is always new. Because then a person truly lives. You know, that's, it's very important, you know. Many people go through life where they head into the future with their back to the future. And they just pull the past into the present. Pulling the past into the present. A person has to turn around and face the future and leave the past behind them. You have to learn from the past, but you have to enter into each new day that it's brand new and you, you really don't know what to expect. And can I tell you something? You really don't know what to expect. Because if I were to ask you what's going to happen a minute from now, you'd say, well, you know, I'm, I have to go shopping or I, I'm meeting a friend or, you know, I've got some work to do. And I say, no, 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 no. What's going to happen 60 seconds from now? You go, well, you know, I mean, probably this guy's going to continue to be talking. <laughs> you know? I say, no. What is going to happen 60 seconds from now? Everyone eventually is going to run out of answers and say, I don't know. And that's the truth. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen one second from now. We don't know what's going to happen one second from now. And that's reality. We, 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 and, and, and it's not, and you say, well, no, that's kind of like, but wait, that's too idealistic. It, how can it also be reality? <laughs> Does that mean that reality validates idealism? Blah! That's undermining my cynicism. You know, it's like, so, it, it, but it's actually the more realistic take. You see, that's, that's, the, that's the funny irony, is that cynicism is actually less honest and less true, but it's, it, 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 it presents itself with an um, arrogance which, which demands that it be seen as the truth. And, and the irony is that which the cynics mock, which is this idea of an idealism, and we don't know, we don't know, is actually the truth. It's actually the truth. Now, how do you apply that? Okay, then you have to, again, then we double back to this idea of the unprecedented present. When do we apply lessons from the past going forward, and when do we stay open to new things? Okay, now we're, now we're back to the idea of how to apply this idea in a, in a real, sophisticated, mature way. But nonetheless, conceptually, the idea is that the future is completely open-ended. And that's actually the truth. Now, again, another caveat. Many people enter into relationships saying, I'm going to change the person. And, and that is uh, a very dangerous way to, um, to, to, to begin a relationship. And as a foundation, it's a very, shabby relation, a very shabby foundation for a relationship. And I think I have a theory that I, I want to share with you. This is just my thought. You can take it or leave it. But they say that women are particularly guilty of, of or not guilty, but inclined toward this type of uh, philosophy, and I wonder if it's not based, and I'm talking about metaphysics right now, I wonder if it's not based on the following idea, in part anyway, which is that women, unlike men, women create people. And they really do. I mean, they, you know, a, a man has a, you know, 
role in it, but it's pretty minor. You know, a, a, a woman actually makes a person. And, and so ingrained into a woman's consciousness is this idea that they actually make people. And I'm sure this is all unconscious. I don't think that this is, you know, anyone is thinking this way, you know. And so when they enter into a relationship, you know, why, why shouldn't they have the predisposition that they can remake or make or create this person because they have that innate power to create people? So perhaps that's where that instinct comes from. Nonetheless, in the here and now, speaking as a man, don't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> because you're going to get yourself into trouble. Because people who have exhibited a certain character trait for most of their life are more likely to maintain that than not to maintain it. And perhaps much, much more likely to maintain it rather than not to maintain it. So, so that's, that's, that's important to know. Okay. So now, let's get back to this idea of lack of closure and, 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 and continual travels. So I, I was making the point that Sefer Bamidbar, the fourth book of the Torah, which can be seen as the last book of the Torah, ends with a recounting of all the travels, meaning to say that the travels continue. But, but the point is made more strongly in the following way. And I, I've shared with you, this with you in the past, but it's a, an important step before I, I share the, the, the bigger thought. Which is, if, if I were to ask you, what is the main storyline of the Torah? Okay? Meaning to say, if you had to sum up the entire Torah, especially beginning with the second book, with Shmos, Exodus, what is the, in one sentence, the main story of the Torah? I would suggest to you the answer is the Jews going into the land of Israel, right? Because the whole idea is that, you know, it, in, in, in the beginning of the Torah, it gets promised to us, and then we go down into Egypt, and then God says to Moshe, get the Jews out of Egypt and bring them to Israel. And that's, you know, on, on the simplest, simplest level, that's the, kind of the storyline of the Torah. Okay. Now, given the fact that the Torah, the five books, is the microcosm, contains everything in the world, it hit me not so long ago, isn't it striking that we never get into Israel? <laughs> the Torah ends without us getting into Israel. And, you know, everyone kind of focuses on the fact that Moshe doesn't get in. Well, none of us really get in in the five books. You know? And it, it's almost like a red herring, you know? You know what a red herring is in a, in, a, in a detective story, like in a movie or a novel or whatever it is. See, if the detective said, oh, like on page nine, I know who did it. It's Mr. Jones, the shady accountant. And then on page 10, it's like, oh, yeah, Mr. Jones really did do it. You don't have a book anymore, right? So you have to you have to suspect. Oh no, it's not. It's Mr. Smith, but uh, it's not Mr. Smith. Ah, it's Mr. Taylor. Nah, it's not Mr. Taylor. And then on page two hundred and fifty, it's Mr. Jones, and it's Mr. Jones, right? So all the people before Mr. Jones are red herrings, right? 
In other words, it's like a false lead. It's something that sort of blinds you to what is really going on. And, and in a way, Moshe not going into the land of Israel is a red herring. <laughs> because we're all just saying, how come Moshe doesn't get to go into Israel? But what about the rest of us? Okay, now we get into Israel. That's, we do get into Israel. And in the next book, in like the beginning, like almost page one of Sefer Yoshua, the book of Joshua, which is the next book chronologically of Tanakh, we get in. So don't think we don't get in. We do get in. But nonetheless, the five books, the Chumash, the Torah, has a special status which is totally elevated. Like nothing else has that status. And to think that within that construct we don't get in, well, that's, that, that's pretty interesting. Now, why am I bringing that up? Lack of closure. Lack of closure. That, that, that's the point. Now, now it's, it's summed up, I think, um, in, in, in some words that we say uh, during the, the prayers every single day. Um, after we, we say that uh, God is absolutely everywhere, we say, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzfakot, Melokal Arts, Kivodo. That, 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 that the holiness of God, and we repeat it three times, holy, 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 the holiness of God, it saturates all of reality. Like God is in everywhere and in everything. That doesn't mean that that thing is God, it's, but it's an emanation of godliness, right? Like the, the way to think about it is the relationship between a wave and the ocean. The wave is not the ocean, but the wave is a manifestation of the ocean. So all of our souls, each and every one of us, we're all manifestations of godliness. We're not God, but we're manifestations of godliness. And then God fills the whole world and exists beyond the world. So that's the idea, if you want to get a little academic about it, that's called imminence, okay? Imminence means, like, it's, like if you say, um, the news is imminent, that means it's going to happen any second. It means super close. So God is super close. But then the fascinating thing is, after we say that, we talk about the angels for a couple of lines, and then we say, Baruch Kavod Hashem Mim Komo. Blessed is the glory of Hashem from His place. Now what that means, that's, that, that's said by the angels. The angels are saying, and remember the angels have a radically, exponentially greater revelation of godliness than we do. And the angels are saying, Blessed is the glory of Hashem from his place, meaning to say they don't even see the, the final resting place of God. From his place is a vague term, meaning to say that the infinity of godliness is even beyond the comprehension of angels. And that must be, because if the angels could see the entirety of God, then the angels would be God. So even angels are subsets of God, right? They're just sort of like the, the way in which it's, 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 it, they're just manifestations of divine energy that God uses to enact his will. That's all angels are, right? But they're, 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 they're finite as well. They're finite creations as well, just like we are. Only they exist in higher dimensions and have much grander vistas, views of the infinity of God, but they don't see the extent of it. So, so, so again, and you see this dynamic in the prayers quite a bit, after we talk about 
the imminence of God. We talk about the transcendence of God. And those two things are always close to each other because you have to understand that that, that both exist simultaneously. That's the dynamic of Avinu Malkenu, we say about God. God is our father, meaning God is very close to us. And then we say, and God is our king, meaning it's very hard to get an appointment with the king. That's, you know, he's up in the palace somewhere. So that's the simultaneous idea, imminence and transcendence simultaneously. Okay? So, so relating it back to the 42 journeys and the lack of closure, we have to understand that the reason why we never make it into Israel is because the soul never stops traveling. After, after we leave this world, after 120, our soul leaves our body, right? And we travel through the infinity of God and we never stop and we never can stop because God is infinite and we are finite. And even the angels say, blessed is the glory of Hashem from his place. Meaning to say, we, we never stop traveling, we never stop going up. And that's why the Torah doesn't end with us getting into Israel. Because that would suggest a closure which doesn't exist. Because we are endlessly traveling. And that's the closure, the lack of closure, which I told you in the beginning, is actually a very beautiful, wonderful thing. That, that true closure, in the most metaphysical sense, doesn't exist. That's beautiful, because we remain finite, even as we become more spiritualized and more able to um, grasp higher revelations of godliness. Nonetheless, God remains Beyond, beyond, beyond. In a beautiful way. Because then we, we never stop traveling. It never gets old. And if it gets old, you're doing something wrong. I promise you. You're doing something wrong. One of the most kind of striking things, I, 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 uh, there's a, an amazing story that I heard um, I'm, I'm, I don't remember her full name. I, her first name was Tova. And she, she, an incredible life story. And the title of it, it had the word fire in it. Um, but anyway, she, she told about uh, growing up uh, uh, in this Christian, radical Christian uh, sect. And she became like a, a teacher, a, a minister within the, this order. And they really were down on this world and they'd feed them rotten food so that... Um, they shouldn't get attached to anything material. So they would literally eat rotten food. And it was in England somewhere. And she finds out, and you, ha- you have to hear the story. It's an amazing, amazing story. She wrote it up as a book as well. She finds out that she's Jewish at a certain point, And now she's, a- she's actually like a leader within this order and is giving sermons and, and whatnot. And at one point, she's about to, and she's wrestling with her own identity and who she is and what, what she has to do and what her mission in life is. And she has to give a, a speech, um, another sermon, and she looks at her library. She has a shelf of books. And she says, and it, it felt dead to her. She said that um, I already know everything in all of these books. And then here's the point. She then said to herself, 
there's something wrong with this situation if I think that I know God. And ultimately, she left Christianity and she returned to her Jewish roots. And it's a very beautiful story. But, but that moment always struck me as a very heart-wrenching moment that any time we get into the position where we think that we know God, that should be a signal to ourselves that something or that learning has become boring, that the Torah has become boring, or that we, we know it, we know it. I remember I, I, I grew up in a Reformed congregation, and I remember telling my mother, because we were going over the holidays every year in, in Sunday school, and I remember I was like, I don't know, 10 or something like that, begging her not to send me to, to Sunday school, begging her, and telling her, I know it all, I know it all already. And she was like, you're going, you know, it's like, what do you, you know, <laughs> you know, sorry. But it's, you know, it's, it's something that even sincere Torah students encounter, where they hit a place and they feel like, I feel like I know this. I haven't heard anything new yet. I don't, and it's very heartbreaking. And if you look at the early history of the um, Hasidic movement, you'll see that many of the key figures of the uh, in the beginning of the Hasidic movement were great Torah scholars um, in in the what we call the the Litvish world, meaning to say, in a, maybe more the intellectually oriented world, who hit a dead end. And just felt like, no, it can't be. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. And they came to Hasidus. And not only did they come to Hasidus, which is very much 100% Torah, but nonetheless, it's a deeper revelation of Torah. And, and they were able to, to, to get to very, very high, great places. Um, but again, it was, it was that sense that there's got to be more, and they're, and they're right, there is more. I know in my own life, one of the reasons why I, I became religiously observant is because I also felt like there has to be more to this world. It can't just be, you know, making a lot of money and eating good food and living in a nice house. That can't. This world is too deep. This world is too big. You know, it can't be that that's the point of all of creation. It can't be. I refuse to accept that that's the bottom line. I refuse. I refuse. Um, and I was extremely fortunate because as a kid, I mean, as an eight-year-old, I was exposed to Hasidic stories and, and to Reb Shlomo Karlbach when I was 14. And so, so as I got older, you know, I, I had that taste of transcendence and I, I knew that that existed in the world. Um, and Rabbi Shlomo says so many times, you know, if you meet people who, who aren't, I don't like the word religious, I think it's a silly word, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a dumb word, um, because what we're talking about is something so much more than that. Um, connected, yeah, connected. The depth. I heard Rabbi Shlomo say with my own ears, he said, in this day and age, it's, this, it's a crime, it's a crime, he used the word crime, to be superficial. Crime to be superficial. So, um, 
So a person has to go deeper. They, they, they're, they're, they're mandated by their own existence to go deeper. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have the license to make things up. That's, that's where it gets tricky because the more creative people have this predisposition so they, or this inclination, this searching soul, so they want to go deeper. But they don't realize that they're not, they don't have the license to make things up. You know, so that's, that, that's where it gets a little bit tricky because when people feel like they're going deeper, they are in many ways breaking from the norm. And they're giving themselves, they're empowering themselves with a sense of, with, with, with fiery individualism. But then the trick is not to misuse that sense of freedom to make yourself into God. You know, no one would phrase it that way, but anyone who's making up all the rules of reality is making themselves into God, whether they would ever ascribe that, that description to themselves or not. Right? You see, the thing is, is that a person has to realize one of the implications of there being a God who has a will is that he gets to make the rules. It's annoying, right? Because I want to make the rules, and you want to make the rules. We want to make the rules. But if you understand the implications of God, you understand that it's only right and fair and true and just that he should make the rules, right? That table, you know, we talked about in the talk, and I I recommend that you listen to this talk if you haven't heard it yet. It's called Hitting the Rock, okay? And it's all about Moshe not going into Israel and everything like that. One of the points that, in other words, there was, why wasn't Moshe allowed to go into Israel? So, So it says that he was supposed to speak to the rock and then water was going to come out of the rock and it was going to make this tremendous Kiddush Hashem, this incredible, epic sanctification of God's name. Okay? Now, now, now it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Moshe hit the rock, and then still the water came out, and then God says, you can't go into Israel. But the question that I wanted to ask was, what, what, what's the happy version? What was supposed to happen? Right? And, and I think that if you sort of like, you see, Rashi brings down that, that had Moshe spoken to the rock, and the rock put out water. People would have said the following thing. This rock, which doesn't need anything from God, and he uses the word parnosa, which means money, cash money, like livelihood to live on. This rock that doesn't need anything from God, including its livelihood, if it listens to God, how much more so do I, who am dependent on God for absolutely everything, do I have to listen to the word of God? Now, this is really... Now, I, I wanted to stretch this out and, and apply this concept further because a lot of people just stop there. They go, oh, okay, well, you know, I guess we would have learned that lesson. But wait a second. Let's, 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 let's figure out what does it mean to learn that lesson for a moment. Because if you remember, the spies who slandered the land of Israel and who felt in the most positive reading of the uh, account of the spies 
that they were actually doing a positive thing by keeping us in the desert, which was going to be a spiritually higher place that we would continue to live in this miraculous relationship with God where bread fell from the sky and, 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 and water came from the rocks and, and, and we were surrounded by the, the Anana covered the, the, the clouds of glory, right? So, so that that was the preferred relationship and that if we go into the land of Israel, we're going to have to be farming and we're going to have to be working the land and, then, and, 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 and eking out a living from bread and, and, and all these things and that we wouldn't have time for God anymore and it would be a very unspiritual existence. That's what they, that, that was their rationale, according to some accounts. So, so they said, let's not go into the land because they had you know, a more elevated sort of intention in terms of us living with this uh, seemingly closer relationship with God. But, but think about this. What if we had learned the lesson from the rock? What if Moshe had spoken to the rock and this idea that inanimate objects obey the will of God, right? And we had gone into the land. What, what did God have in mind? Forget about what the spies' account was. What did God have in mind? So perhaps it was that we looked at every tree and we were like blowing our minds. That tree is still a tree. That rock is still a rock. That chair is still a chair. All these things are listening to God, right? They're remaining what they are. They're all obeying the word of God. How much more so should I obey the word of God? Now, imagine, you know, anyone who's had the privilege of being around a real tzaddik or tzaddikus, a real righteous, holy person, you know that they make you want to serve God more, right? Imagine if you look at a chair as a perfect tzaddik, that this chair is absolutely 1,000% adhering to the will of God, that I'm surrounded by these four walls which are remaining walls, perfectly adhering to the word of God, then wherever I am, wherever I go, I want to do the right thing because I'm surrounded by objects who are doing the right thing. And by the way, this is not, just to give you a further support, just to show you that what, what I'm saying is, 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 is based in Torah. It says that when God spoke to the Shemayim, to the firmament, and it said basically, become the firmament, that the sky like froze into place and like trembles billions of years later, from the initial instructions from God, is still frozen in place, heeding the word of God. And that's why they say, Rabbi Nachman says that after davening, when you go outside, look up at the sky and that it will increase wisdom. Because you look at the sky and the sky is still frozen in place, still trembling in in its stationary position from something it heard from God billions of years ago. And it's like it's being commanded every second this second. So the idea of inanimate objects inspiring us because they're still adhering to their form. And that's, that's really, that's, 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 that's intense, you know? Okay. So now, I want to continue with this idea of the 42 because this idea, I still haven't told you the idea that I wanted to tell you. <laughs> So it's the idea of the infinite travels, the infinite travels of the soul, that it, that it never stops, that it never stops. And I wanted to suggest the following thing. It came to me on Shabbos, which is 
You see, one of the ways of looking at the universe, this world and beyond to the infinite, is by sort of making a bit of a map, and that map is the name of God, and you spell out Yud, you do top to bottom, you put Yud on top, and underneath that you put He, and underneath that you put the letter Vav, and underneath that you put the letter He. So you're spelling out the name of God, top to bottom. And that's, uh, that signifies these four worlds, Kabbalistically speaking. It's all one world, but these are different stratifications. Increasing in light, the Yud is the emanation of the highest sources of light, beyond, beyond this world. So obviously the name isn't God, it's a name of God, because we don't put any parameters on God, because God is infinite. Um, nonetheless, this is one way of kind of giving a, a broader view of the, of the world. So, so another beautiful foundation I heard from Rabbi Shlomo, the letter He is a vessel. Just remember that. That's a foundation. You'll be able to apply it in many different contexts in learning. The letter He is a vessel. Now, we know that the bottom He of Hashem's name stands for this world. And that's Malchus, if you're getting a little technical here. But that's a, that's a vessel that, that holds everything above. Right? So that's, that's, that's the bottom He. And then we have above, above that, which is the connection. right? And then we have the next He. Now, that next hay is just below the initial yud. So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Reb Tzadok HaKoyin that that top hay, which again is a vessel, stands for Olam Haba, the next world. So in other words, the bottom hay is this world, and the top hay is the next world. And if you think about it, that hay is a vessel, the idea that it's right underneath that yud, which is the highest emanations of light, it makes sense because that, that, that light from that yud is going directly into that first hay. So that's a higher that's a higher vessel. And we know that the next world is a higher vessel than this than this world, right? More spiritualized uh, dimension than this world. Okay. So again, you have the the yud, the highest emanation of light, then you have the then you have the hay, which is the next world, then you have the vav, which is the connection down to this world. Okay? Now listen to the following. Here's the idea. These 42 travels, right? We have a, a concept in, 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 in understanding numbers. And then we can boil numbers down to one simple number. In other words, till we have one digit. Okay? So what's 4 plus 2 equals 6? Six is the letter Vav. Okay, so when we talk about the infinite travels of the soul, another way to conceptualize it is six is the letter Vav. And what did we just say in the name of Hashem? If you look at that cosmic map, if you will, that heavenly map, you have the bottom He, which is this world. Then you have the letter Vav. What's, what did we say Vav is? Vav is that connection Vav is the number six. Vav is 42. Four plus two equals six. In other words, that's the endless travels from this world to the higher dimensions of the next world. It never stops. That's the journey of the soul. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops. 
So, so what do we do with this type of knowledge? So hopefully we become less afraid and hopefully we don't hold on as much. Certain things you have to hold on to, right? There are three mitzvahs in the Torah that a person has to die rather than, than, than accede to. Normally speaking, we say that, um, we don't say that life is higher than the Torah. I've heard that repeated. That's, it. That's not what the Torah says. It says that, that you have to choose life so that you can do more mitzvahs. Not that life is higher than the Torah, right? You have to, you have to in, in many instances, like for instance, if a person is starving, 1,000% they can eat unkosher food. What? It's not even a question. Of course you can eat unkosher food if a person is starving. It's not even a question. The only question in halacha is whether you would make a brucha over the unkosher food. And the answer to that is, it's a bit of an exotic uh, bit of halacha, but I'll share it with you. If the food is so disgusting to you because it's not kosher, that you just hate it with all your heart, don't make a blessing. But if you go, okay, it's not kosher. I wish I could have kosher food, but I don't have kosher food right now. But, you know, it's tasty. You know? But what can I do? I, this is what I have right now. Then you, could make a, then you could make a blessing over it. Okay? But we're talking about a very rare instance right now. We're talking about life and death right now. Okay? So, um, God willing, you should never need to know that to apply. Um, so, so, but nonetheless... So, so, so virtually every single mitzvah, we have like 613 mitzvahs, virtually every mitzvah a person can violate um, under the following circumstances, except under the following circumstances. This is again in a life or death situation. That's all I'm talking about. Which is if a person holds a gun, uh, if a person holds a gun to my head and says, worship this idol or I'm going to kill you, a person has to accept death. So for idol worship, they have to accept death. If a person holds a gun to my head and says, kill this person or I'm going to kill you, a person can't kill to avoid being killed. Okay? Again, a person would have to accept death upon themselves. And if a person held a gun to, to, to my head and said, commit this act of sexual immorality or I'll kill you, a person can't do that act. And so, and so those are the only three things. Those are the only three things. But, 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 but those are three things. Those are three things, you know? And then, okay, fine. So, so what I'm saying is, to return to the bigger point, the idea that the soul's journey is infinite and that it never stops, what do we learn from that? That hopefully not to be afraid because we live forever. We live forever. And it's very important to know that the Jewish concept is that when the soul leaves the body after 120, you maintain your personality and you maintain your memories. It's like they say, like if you, Rabbi Ari Kaplan gives the example that if you were to save some information from a computer program onto a disk, right, that disk is the essence. It has all the information you need. It has the file that you need. So when the soul leaves the body, that's like the software leaving the hardware. But the software is the essence. 
you have all the information. So some people have, that's a very empowering thought, by the way, that's a very important thought, because some people, even spiritual people, think that, okay, yeah, the soul lives on, but what does that mean, the soul lives on? It's so vague. What do you do? I guess part of me disappears into the infinity of God, and how does that really help me? You know, it's like, I want to live! I want to live! Right? So it's like... <laughs> but a person does live. That's the whole point. A person, you, you, a person continues to live as themselves, but in this much higher, refined way, but as themselves. And then I heard, I believe it was Revitzen Sapporo Heller said this. How does, interestingly, I, I was... Really, I loved this idea. How does a person recognize another person in the next world? Right? Because you don't have your body, and they're a soul and you're a soul. So how do you recognize each other? So, so she said that a person has all of their mitzvot imprinted on them. Right? So, so I'll encounter another soul that will say, you know, I gave birth to David Sachs. <laughs> I changed his diapers. I, I put up with him when he was incredibly annoying. Right? I'll go, Mom! <laughs> so, so that's, that's, but it never ends. So, 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 so a person can exhale. A person can exhale and they can go, okay, okay, okay. I can I can let go of this thing, or I can let go of that thing. Again, there are certain things, like I said, we, we can't let go of. We have to actually, you know, die rather than let go of. There are certain tenets that, that are, you know, non-negotiable, as we just explained. But nonetheless, other than that, and that hopefully is an extreme case that God willing will never encounter in our life, other than that, we can say, okay, you know, I live forever. I live forever, and I'm, I'm taking the long view. I'm taking the long view. And it's certainly, if a person understands the reality of that, it certainly helps, I would say, tremendously to order a person's perspective and expectations and happiness. Because, um, you know what, if my entire happiness is contingent on X, that's dangerous, you know, because maybe X will happen, maybe X won't happen. I don't know. You know, I bless us that all of our X's should happen for the good, you know, fast, you know. But on the other hand, you know, if I live forever and it's and it only gets better and better and better and better and better and better and better, and better then I can relax to a certain extent knowing that there's a happy ending no matter what. So, Shem should bless us that, that as we really draw close to, to Tishabav, the ninth of Av, which we've been promised by God himself through the Navi, through the prophet Zechariah, Zachary, will become one of the great holidays the great holidays of the year. All the fast days are going to become great holidays, all the more so Tishobab, which is the main sad day. That as we get closer to that, that we should really see before it even comes, that we should see the completion in the grandest sense of the 42 journeys. And we should see really that all the work that we've been endeavoring to do should 
We should see before our eyes the, the, the completion. And, um, and uh, one very last thought. I, I was once thinking, you know, we're always reading these, this double Parsha, Matos Masai, um, during the three weeks, and, you know, close to Tishabov, which has the travels in it again. And uh, in, 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 in Torah books, like, uh, there's an abbreviation that's used in, in Sifrei Kodesh, holy books. And that abbreviation is Mem Mem. And Mem Mem means uh, Mikol Makom, which means nevertheless. It's coming to reverse what the previous thought was. So it will say, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Mikol Makom, Nevertheless, this is what we say. So I wanted to say based on that, that we, right in the three weeks, as we're approaching Tisha B'av, we have Matos Masai, which is Mem Mem. And it's as though Hashem is saying, it's true you're in exile, but Mem Mem, <laughs> nevertheless, I'm going to bring you out of all of your personal troubles and redeem you. We should see it fast. Yeah.